Hey, this is Rob. This is episode 112 of the Folly Copy Podcast. Let's get it brewing. Hey, I'm Austin Demeter, um, coffee educator, coffee geek, uh, all that stuff. But uh, hey, yo, uh, thanks for taking the time talking today, Rob. Appreciate it. Yeah, Austin Demeter, co-founder of Epiphany Coffee, logistics at Bespoke Coffee Trading. Uh, you've done things like judged at the U.S. Coffee Champs Brewers uh, at the national competition, uh, as well as a barista. And so really excited to have you on. Obviously, we met when you were here in Minnesota. And then all of a sudden, you're like, hey, I'm moving. And <laughs> I'm I <am>, going <laughs> to go roast out in Idaho. Yeah. Uh, but, but before we get to that, I'd love to just get all the way back to like your coffee story, because I love to figure out how people got into coffee, what attracted you to it, and then almost more importantly, what keeps you in it? Because there's a lot of people that kind of jump in and out of the industry, but you find someone like yourself that not only gets into the industry, but also like really, really gets into it and ends up like launching a whole career out of it. So I'd love to hear the very beginning of your story and kind of go from there. Yeah, um, so my coffee story actually starts um, while I was pursuing my master's in education um, at St. Thomas University there in, uh, you know, Minneapolis, St. Paul area. Um, so I had uh, gone, done my uh, bachelor's degree um, at a school in Roseville, actually called Northwestern or University of Northwestern. And, uh, you know, the goal was to become a history teacher, maybe even a history professor, um, and really just dive in deep for education in general. Uh, so that was kind of like goals from like, you know, age 16 to like 26, roughly. Um, and so while I was pursuing my uh, master's in ed, there was just quite a few kind of like almost backlash, a lot of resistance uh, from colleagues and also even like the head of my department, for example, at St. Thomas, where, you know, at one point, uh, this individual, while I was just trying, you know, really hard to make this degree work, um, was like, I don't think you're fit to be a teacher. Um, I don't think this is going to work out for you. And that was kind of like a huge blow uh, to me uh, in terms of just like that whole goal of trying to build up to that point of becoming an educator. And that's when I started realizing, well, hey, um, not that I'm going to take this negative feedback to heart per se, but if this is what other individuals, heck, even like, you know, heads of my field in this uh, instance, are the that's the type of people I might be working with in the future, that's probably something I should reconsider. Because um, I don't want to, you know, basically, I didn't want to live my life around people who are just going to constantly potentially just bring me down like that. Uh, so in my mind, I was like, okay, um, let's keep an open mind. And uh, I was really lucky. Uh, for example, um, I was, uh, my wife was actually working as a barista with Dunn Brothers at that time. Uh, so a little shout out to Dunn Brothers, I guess. But anyways, um, so she was working as a barista. I was just head in the books constantly so I would just study up um, at the Dunn Brothers she worked at, get free coffee all day, try to stay charged. And, uh, and then when she was done with her shift, we'd drive back and, you know, <laughs> copy and paste. Uh, so it was this kind of a, a thing where she was kind of doing that. And then her general manager actually eventually was like, hey, is Austin like looking for a super flexible part-time work? Because I think he could be a good roaster for us. And so it was kind of like a random opportunity that landed on my lap. And I was like, you know what? Sounds cool. Um, and if they're willing to teach me and it's super flexible, sounds like a great gig for me while I'm like a full-time student. Uh, so basically uh, started roasting uh, at the Roseville location. Actually, I don't even think it's open anymore. Um, and basically just really loved the opportunity. Um, I can't remember his last name, but there was, he was just known as Roaster Bob for Dunn Brothers for the longest time. He did all the profiling, coffee selection for Dunn Brothers for a long, long time. And uh, he like drove out and just like hanged out with me probably at least once a month just to kind of like kind of invest in me and try to get me kind of really honed in on the profiles he was trying to dial in for, you know, the Diedrich IR5 I was working on over there. And uh, basically... 
once he took the time of day to spend some time with me, that's when I was like, oh, wow, someone who's actually the head of like, say this department of roasting, for example, not shutting me down, not saying I'm not fit for this. And so it's kind of an instant like click for me to be like, okay, wow, people in the coffee industry are actually supportive. People in the coffee industry actually want to see people grow and succeed. And so I was like, okay, seems like it's the right type of people to surround myself with. And so uh, just kind of kept on taking it seriously. Um, through that uh, franchise of Dunn Brothers, um, I ended up roasting for you know, four different stores at one time. Uh, and then that grew to six different stores, then to eight different stores. Uh, and it kind of just became like this journeyman, you know, roasting position basically for Dunn Brothers, um, kind of just doing that on the side outside of, uh, you know, doing the school thing. And, you know, it's cool because some of those, uh, you know, managers and owners, they'd let me come in at like 11 p.m. and just roast all the way through to like, 1am and it was just kind of like a really unique time to just be like okay i've got it's just me and this roaster for the next three hours and really there wasn't a lot you know this is the downside of dunn brothers um at least at that time there really wasn't a lot of checks and bal checks and balances uh in terms of like quality and so it really kind of just allowed me to just go fully off reins uh for roasting and so i got to really just experiment some roasts, of course, didn't turn out as well as they should have. But at the end of the day, a lot of them were uh, really good. And I'm going to put a pause on it for a second. I got to lock my cats up. They're starting to stampede around. That's going to cause some trouble. So, like, <laughs> All, right, five All right. So the cats are reined in. But yeah. it's, it is, it's amazing how many times Dunn Brothers does come up on this podcast with people in the coffee industry in Minnesota. Yeah. Because they're, they're kind of the first ones to be ahead of the curve and having a multi-unit cafe. They are franchised, but every location has their own roaster and they're roasting their own coffee. Yeah. And that's way ahead of its time because you didn't see many shops with a roaster in-house, especially somewhere that's a franchise or a chain usually it's all coming out of like one central location to like maximize the logistics of everything. But Dunn Brothers saw that value and that the customers appreciated that it was being roasted on site. And I have to imagine that that was kind of difficult to manage as a franchise owner where like every single spot has to have somebody roasting the coffee. And so you're yeah. able to kind of capitalize on that opportunity. And I think it's kind of shown by the fact that it's like you were going to the shop and he's like, I think you could roast some coffee. What was that like going from you're a full-time student and you just like coffee and you're going to the shop to drink it to all of a sudden you're roasting coffee. Was it something that when he offered it to you, like what were those initial feelings when he said, would you want to roast coffee in the first place? Yeah. My first thoughts was, I have no idea how the process even works. And if I'm to get proficient at it, there better be somebody to show me the reins. And, and really there wasn't a lot of, my time at Dunn Brothers, you know, there's a few like part-time roasters who kind of showed me what they did. Um, but at the end of the day, there wasn't really anybody who's experienced to say, hey, this is how you track development time. This is how you track, you know, rate of rise. You know, some of the real basics when it comes to roasting wasn't even shown to me until sometime later. Um, and so, it was overwhelming, um, but I just remember um, my dad, who's uh, in the cheese industry, uh, kind of a craftsman in that industry, more or less saying at that time of my life, you know, this is something that is really popular, something that's trending well, and you should take it seriously. That was roughly what he said to me at that time when I first started at Dunn Brothers, and so um, a lot of that kind of just inspired me to find the answers for myself and you know uh that's that's the first time i scrolled past joe morocco's uh you know um instructional videos and i think at that time he might have still been at yeah I, I can't even remember to be honest but anyway so uh anybody online that was doing a good job with instructional videos i was trying to follow up on and uh and that's what kind of you know led me to cross paths with bootstrap um with micah um, and stuff like that. And so when I was kind of at the peak of roasting with Dunn Brothers and starting to really feel uh, like I, I, I'm peaking with Dunn Brothers in terms of, you know, finding, uh, you know, roasting, uh, you know, terms and methods online and really not being able to kind of get anything out of it anymore. 
that's when Micah came in and offered me a job uh, at Bootstrap uh, to be just, you know, a production associate, which at that time was pretty much exactly what I needed. I needed somebody to just mentor me, somebody to teach me, you know, the coffee industry in general. Um, Cause at that time, the expanse that I had was, was Dunn Brothers. And uh, it was just basic. Uh, I don't mean to say, say that in a, in a mean way at all, but you know, Dunn Brothers, like you said, the way that their franchise is set up, they, it can only dig so deep um, before really running into some other issues um, with that type of, you know, business method. And so I was ready to kind of dig deeper in the coffee industry. And that's what Bootstrap gave me. And uh, so Marco Carrera, uh, the current roaster there too, um, we roughly started at around the same time. Um, and I just remember, you know, it was just myself, Marco. Uh, I know Brandon was there at the time too. Um, that's kind of like when we first met at, uh, at that brewery over there. I can't remember what it's called. Um, Lake Monster. Um, oh, yeah. And yeah. And so long story short, between all those uh, individuals working when I started there, they were like an archive to me. I just asked questions left and right, and they had answers for them. And questions I didn't even know I should be asking, they led me to ask. Uh, so it was kind of like a perfect stepping stone for me to actually have a career in coffee. If I would have stopped at Dunn Brothers or if something else would have came up that maybe wasn't as uh, genuine or purposeful, um, I don't think that this career would have, you know, actually came, you know, to where it is today for me. Uh, so it really did take like that almost small business level um, mentorship and uh, to really have me see this as something I can spend the rest of my life doing. Uh, so it really uh, kind of progressed from that production associate role to kind of outreach associate. And then it was really a kind of a sad um, kind of time of life. Uh, it was kind of when I was, it was in 2018, still working with Bootstrap. That's when uh, my mom was diagnosed with uh, stage four ovarian cancer. And so it was a moment of life where I was like, crap, things were starting to work uh, for me in terms of the direction I wanted to go uh, and stuff like that. But, um, but when it came down to it, um, I knew I had to move back to Wisconsin in order to, you know, be there uh, for family because I felt like if I would have stayed away, um, it would have been not the right thing to do. Um, and so that's what really pressed the pretty much the hardest decision I've had to make in my life so far was to leave Bootstrap and to leave the Minneapolis coffee scene. Because honestly, I still have not crossed paths with a more supportive coffee community than Minneapolis and St. Paul. There's so many big, you know, big ish players uh, in the, you know, Twin Cities area, but somehow they all still have mutual respect for one another and they still all play nice. Uh, and, and like in, at the end of the day, like uh, moving to Wisconsin, um, I worked as, it was pretty much my first full-time barista gig there. Um, I came into Tempest Coffee Collective in Appleton, Wisconsin. They were uh, an account of Spy House at the time. And they, you know, I came in as their lead educator. Um, and, you know, long story short, you know, they're in Northeast Wisconsin, especially at that time in 2000, early 2019, there was really no coffee scene at all, just this one shop. Um, but, you know, all that to say, I just wanted to kind of make it clear, like, dude, Minneapolis and St. Paul have something special for the coffee industry. Yeah, and, I've, uh, I've, I've, and, I've said it multiple times yeah, and people yeah. think I'm good. Oh, you're being biased because you're there. Yeah. You're, you're a coffee roaster there. You want to yeah. put out the message. It's like, oh, we're all in this together. When in reality, everybody's, it's like, no, it really is a crazy scene. I was just talking to a roaster that moved here yeah. and uh, from the West coast. And I was like, just like, Hey, sh shoot me a call, shoot me a text, whatever. Like we all kind of know each other. So if you ever want to like meet up and he was like, really? And I'm like, yeah, yeah it's yeah. like, even though we're all kind of competing in a weird way, it is this, I, I've said it, that it's like these, the high end of coffee, especially there's so much room for growth because there's so many customers that have never tasted a great cup that 
to compete against each other in a malicious way seems kind of foolish to me because then we're competing for the same select group of people that already know about great coffee and that type of consumer probably isn't drinking the same bag of coffee every time they go to purchase they're probably trying them all in a uh, in a rotation of coffees but i did want to go back to when you're at dunn brothers yeah because you said an interesting thing that it's like it, it became limiting to you and i totally I, I think i can kind of guess as to how that might be with the franchise multi-unit location you're limited to the menu items menu changes aren't really possible trying new things becomes very difficult especially with franchise models but yeah. at what point did it become feeling limiting what what was it about that were you trying coffees at other places or seeing what other coffee shops or roasters are were doing but uh, at what point did you realize because to most people i think if you told them hey you've never roasted before and then within a short length of time you're now going to be roasting for eight different coffee shops most yeah. people would be like that's more than i ever expected to do so yeah. i'm curious at what point you got that feeling that's like i'm liking what i'm doing but i feel like i've reached that plateau and to get to the next step or and what that next step is for you yeah, and I think to best answer that question, it really was by franchise. Uh, there was one specific franchise uh, that I was roasting for that the owners, they worked for like Carhill or something like that. They were just completely not present. And it was really kind of difficult because I worked with the managers and, you know, tried to roast the best coffee I could even tried creating like specific blends for specific locations and it was really fun it was awesome and but at the end of the day um there was like the occasional time where like the manager would get their wrist slapped because they they exceeded you know the amount of green they were supposed to purchase per you know quarter or month i can't remember and it was just like come on like leave these managers alone we're just trying to create something new and special to make us stand out a little bit and it seemed like it was uh it was a very specific like let's say template uh that was placed upon each uh location and if you tried to go outside of it which i get it for franchises you've got to keep things uniform and consistent across the board but it just felt very limiting to what we could actually do creative wise and um, I also just kind of knew that there was more to be had. And to be fair, like I kept on, I kept roasting for one franchise. I really respected, um, all the way through, uh, almost year, like two at bootstrap. I kept on moonlighting with those guys. Cause I really respected them and they, they let me do me. And, uh, and so at the end of the day, it was almost like, it was kind of like that, you know, okay, maybe it's, it's, it's outgrowing it in a way uh, of where I want to be um, for coffee. But at the end of the day, it really just, it really was like only 12 bucks an hour um, at that time. It was only maybe 20 hours a week. And when it came to driving, I mean, I used to drive to Apple Valley uh, for, for one of the locations. And it was just like, just looking at the bank account, uh, roughly not changing from doing this type of work. I was like, you know what? And if, if, and I knew that asking for a raise was not going to happen. Uh, so it was really like, okay, even just financially focusing, uh, on one place, which in this case was bootstrap financially makes sense. Um, and you know, not to make money, the driving determiner for some of these things, but when you're making less than 20,000 a year, you have to, uh, so it was kind of like a moment of, okay, um, I have to move on. I have to focus my attention to this one endeavor, which was bootstrapped so that I can actually do well in it. Um, and cause that's where I saw my future going at the time was working with bootstrap full time. And so, you know, I think everyone kind of roughly hits that cornerstone of where they either started or gotten a lot of their experience within the industry of either sticking with it or trying to grow through it. Um, and that's exactly what I kind of had to do with Dunn Brothers to bootstrap and then regretfully bootstrap to the next phase, to the next phase and, and kind of get to where I am today. Um, but yeah, truly every single piece of the journey um, attributed to what I actually can present today. So Dunn Brothers was the play, perfect place for me to start. Uh, so, but yeah, anyways.
Yeah. And like I mentioned, Dunn Brothers effect on just coffee roasting in general, especially in Minnesota is like not to be understated, but yeah. to, your to your credit, I think a lot of people in that scenario, they'd go, okay, I'm at the point now when I'm roasting this coffee that I'm not getting any complaints or, you know, they're happy with it. It's fine that I think it would be easy just to say, okay, I can roast good coffee now and I'll just do this over and over and just keep this thing going. Uh, when you went over to Bootstrap, what did you kind of learn from that experience? Was there anything like unexpected about going from roasting for like a franchise type model to going to Bootstrap, who's serving some amazing coffees over in St. Paul? What what did that experience lend to it? Because it, it sounds like that was kind of the turning point where you're making that decision that there, there's the financial motivation, but there's also kind of the passion part of it that you're going, here I am working with managers, working really hard, and they just are actually pushing back on you trying to up the quality or up the creativity to going yeah. to someone like Bootstrap. What, what was that transition like and what led to it wanting you to continue on in your coffee career? Yeah, and that transition was special because I think it really was the first time I experienced uh, like, I, I don't wanna say it was my first like, you know, God coffee cup uh, experience because that happened earlier, but for me, like Bootstrap was the first roastery that I experienced where every single one of their coffees were great. And I was like, okay, how do you do that? Um, so there was, it was almost like a, okay, I see that you're doing something different and it's attractive. I want to know more about that. And so like some of the first things that, you know, I learned from there, I mean, really, I came there with really nothing. I mean, what I, that what I roasted, um, everything was on scratch paper. Um, I, there was no uh, roasting programs, uh, nothing, not even like an environment uh, temperature probe. Uh, basically as basic as you can get, that's where I was roasting knowledge wise. And so having, you know, all these other tools like uh, Cropster and um, even just even learning how to dial in an espresso shot or how to do a pour over all those like kind of, you know, more or less basic specialty coffee skills, I learned through Bootstrap. Um, so it was one of really like kind of like that threshold of actually learning how to do things for yourself in terms of, you know, how to, uh, I guess I'm repeating myself at this point, but truly like Bootstrap showed me everything that I needed to actually know the difference between good and bad coffee. That was basically the main thing that Micah and Marco were determined to teach me is you're going to cup every single day with us and you're going to dial in espresso occasionally. You're going to, um, you know, set up the Bonavita Brewer or do a Chemex pour over and you're going to learn the difference between good and bad coffee. That was really what they taught me. And they, uh, that foundation has more or less served as a compass for me for the rest of my career because without those that basic knowledge um and even just that basic knowledge of being able to say this is an 85 scoring coffee or roughly around that is is so 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 essential no matter where you land in the industry uh so the fact that they uh, were able to teach me that um especially as i moved back to wisconsin there was not a lot of great coffee in that general area in Appleton, Wisconsin at that time. So to dive in there and say, okay, this is a good coffee. This is a not good coffee. This coffee would be good for espresso. This coffee would be good for brewed. That would be a solid one for cold brew. You know, being able to literally just make those types of decisions every single day really helped um, the operations of this this coffee shop that I worked in, in 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 the next stage of things, and so like truly, when I look back, everything kind of stems back to that lesson that I learned there. Um, so it was a uh, it was a really really important move that I made, and honestly, without making that move uh, and learning those lessons, I I I would honestly say I would either be uh, kind of in a more basic role in the coffee industry, or I just really wouldn't have found the value in it long-term and I might've transitioned into something else or went back to education by this point. I, I really do believe that. Uh, so yeah, hopefully uh, that kind of answers that question, but yeah. Yeah, definitely. 
now you now you find yourself in Boise. So how did you find yourself in Boise, Idaho, roasting for a company that you co-founded? How did that whole process begin itself? So this is what I like to call the, the stage two of trying to replicate and or find another coffee community like Minneapolis and St. Paul. Um, so in Wisconsin, I was working as this lead educator um, before uh, other big, you know, because Northeast Wisconsin now, especially like the Appleton, Green Bay area, Door County, they actually have a lot of cool players now in the specialty coffee industry that have popped up in the last two years. Um, Lawless Coffee is a really great example. Tempest Coffee Collective, they're still there. Um, they serve Olympia now, an excellent source of coffee. Um, and honestly, but when I first started there, there really wasn't anything but Tempest. Um, and so um, I guess what I'm trying to say is I was disappointed um, that they haven't experienced what I experienced in Minneapolis. And I said that uh, again, when I moved to Boise. Um, so um, spent a year being a lead educator at Tempest and then roughly uh, kind of like February of 2020 is when we moved to um, Idaho. Um, and I thought I had a job lined up uh, with a coffee company here in Boise. And they pulled out two weeks before we moved. And I was like, are you kidding me? Uh, so um, once I got to Boise, I was, I was unemployed. So I hit the ground running as fast as I could and found a coffee company. Um, and yeah, so I was their head roaster um, and a wholesale educator um, for about a year. And the entire time I was working for these folks, I was really itching kind of like a similar feeling i had at dunn brothers or i was like okay i know what we can do to make things taste better i know what we can do for quality control measures to keep things more easily trackable and consistent let me do it is basically what i kind of showed up every single day hoping to do and uh the owners had a different mentality on things um to say the least and they uh had a lot of pushback on just the general things that I wanted to do, which in essence was kind of trying to replicate what I learned in Minneapolis and St. Paul. Um, and it kind of got to the point where uh, they uh, really didn't like me chiming in as much as I did. And uh, they, they let me go in February um, in a not so cool way. And I, uh, that's what kind of put me in a position of either A, um, I try to find another coffee company to work for, which in Boise, Idaho, I'd say there's two like large-ish coffee companies and a lot of small players that wouldn't be hiring for new employees. And I was like, okay, um, it's a kind of position where I'm in where either I create a company or I try to get along with some other business owners here, um, which... I had the general feeling that I wouldn't see eye to eye with them. Um, Cause it's a regretful thing that um, the coffee industry in Boise is, is cool cause it's on its own. Boise, fun fact about Boise, it's at least a six, I guess there's Salt Lake City, it's four and a half hours away. But Boise is like the only large-ish -ish city within like a four and a half hour drive. And so what it has is, uh, is on its own which is cool in terms of like local business wise, there's a cool like flourishing small business, you know, kind of push here. But in terms of the coffee industry, there really wasn't a lot of individuals who experienced US coffee champs who experienced, um, you know, some of the things that I was able to go through, which I'm not trying to put a lot of, you know, let's say stock into the experiences that I've had, but it showed me something that is really cool and unique that Boise did not have yet. And so, um, that's when epiphany uh started uh so yeah um it's just me uh and my wife um kind of running epiphany at the moment she's like a social media guru so when you see our instagram and stuff like that there's no way i have the mind for it so it's it's all her but really what i'm trying to do here in boise is just replicate um what i what grew me to want to be in the coffee industry in the first place which was the people, which was the quality, which was just the, the interactive, inclusive environment that Minneapolis and St. Paul has. And if I can even replicate a portion 
of that here in Boise, I know that people are going to be stoked about it because there's a lot of new folks moving in from the West Coast, kind of like what you said earlier, that people are, are actually hungry for coffee community. Um, we had our first Boise, you know, like latte art throwdown last month, and there's like 60 people that showed up. Um, and it was like, okay, that means people are really interested in, in what's happening in the coffee industry here. There's just not a lot of outlets for it. And so that's all Epiphany is, is here to do, is to create that environment for people to learn and to grow in the coffee industry, hopefully find a career in it that's worth pursuing. Um, so yeah, but that's, uh, that's, that's kind of what uh, led me to start Epiphany. It was a little bit of uh, frustration with, uh, with, with things around here, um, but it had a lot to do with just the fact that it changed my life um, being in the coffee industry. And I know that there's other people out there who could benefit from being in the coffee industry too. Um, so anyways, uh, yeah. And kind of the newest thing with uh, Boise is uh, one of my good friends, uh, his name's Dave Bacon. Um, he used to work with uh, Joe uh, with Liston Beisler. Um, and he, uh, he just started his own coffee trading business too. And so that's where um, bespoke coffee trading comes into play. And that was kind of like the last sector of the coffee industry I hadn't even been able to experience yet is how does one source one's own coffee? How does one import one's own coffee? How do you establish like actual meaningful relationships with coffee farmers? And that's, that's kind of the endeavor that I'm on right now. So it's a really fun place in life that I'm currently in where I, I have epiphany as a business owner. Um, I get to work for uh, an awesome coffee trading business, and I'm still working as a barista uh, for Broadcast Coffee. Um, and so I get to kind of work in different sectors um, every single day and really get to see the full circle of the coffee industry. And it just further proves uh, that there's no industry like the coffee industry. It's beautiful. It's fun and uh, inclusive. And it's the way it should be. Uh, if there's anybody in the coffee industry not doing that way, watch out. I think that uh, there's not a lot of room for that type of way of doing business in coffee for much longer. So, but anyways, that's just personal opinions coming out, of course. But yeah, and that's, I think it's it, again having the Twin Cities coffee scene is obviously the only one I've been in professionally. But the obsession started for me when I was in the Chicago land, like Southern Illinois area, and then St. Louis for a year, and I traveled a bunch. And it is something that like when I went around, what I'd do is I'd go to different roasters or shops and be like, where else should I go? Or who else should I go see? And you kind of notice this hesitancy to say, oh, go to this roaster. They're really good too. Or you should go check them out. Or do you know anyone over there that I might, you might be able to give a heads up to? And you know other coffee scenes, I just didn't see this. And granted, this was like 2014 to 16, roughly. Yeah. But I think it is something special. But I think in general, in the industry, it does seem as if a lot of the pretentiousness is going away. I think people are realizing that that that's a very short term strategy to make people feel like they should be honored to be in a space and that they, and that you're in charge and yeah. that you know more than them so that they should feel inferior in any way. But yeah, I want to go back to the when you decided to start Epiphany because you're just like, and then we started it, and now we're going. <laughs> yeah, I, I probably skipped over that way too. Quickly. Yeah. yeah it's, so, what were the first steps when you decide uh, I want to start coffee roasting business myself? What were the first steps, and how did you kind of act on those to move forward? Yeah, um, I'd say that where the confidence came from was uh, at one point shortly before I left bootstrap, I just remember Micah saying word for word, like, Hey, you're going to be working for a coffee shop uh, next. If you work for them for about a year and really learn the way that you've learned here, I guarantee you, you'd be able to start your own business and do well. And I'd love to help you when that time comes. And it was like almost like those that quote kept on kind of playing in my head as that scary time when I was let go unemployed during COVID, um, thinking, what the heck am I going to do to bring a dollar in? And not that starting a business was going to bring a dollar in, but you know, it's just like, okay, um, I know that I have the set of experiences that I need to at least have a good start. And I know um, 
how to do it. Um, I just need to have the resources for it. And so um, we were really fortunate. Um, one of our closest friends here in Boise was willing to help us get a start financially. And so the, the financial side of things were, um, were invested into uh, us in the beginning. And at the end of the day, from there, it was just reaching out to my friends um, who are already working in the industry. Um, and so reached out to, you know, Ari from Cafe Imports, reached out to uh, Jen Hurd from Genuine Origin, reached out to, you know, all these folks that I were, was really lucky to meet along the way. And it really was, without other people, um, Epiphany wouldn't have had a start at all. So for example, uh, the place that we're renting from uh, for roasting uh, and stuff like that, I didn't even know the person when I started Epiphany. Um, I just happened to reach out to another local kind of uh, coffee person here. And, uh, and she was like, reach out to, to this person. Um, and I didn't even know that a Loring Falcon existed in Boise, Idaho until this person referred me to uh, this business owner. And uh, so, yeah, so his name's Greg Abshire. Um, he's been roasting, owning, owning a wholesale business for roasting for like greater part of 20 years and showed up to his door, basically said, hey, I want to start a wholesale business. It's a cool ever rent time from your machine. And if it wasn't for that green light, um, Epiphany would have had a much different start because um, I was still thinking, oh man, I might need to buy like a freaking hookie and just roast like one pound roast over and over and over and over again to keep up with like maybe retail bags. And, uh, and literally this, uh, this person has allowed us to have such low overhead uh, that without that type of connection, Epiphany would just, mm, it'd be scary, um, a lot more scary uh, than what it is to start a business during COVID in the first place. And so I, I say all this to basically reiterate, um, if I didn't have the right set of people behind me uh, starting Epiphany, it wouldn't have happened. Um, there would have been too much risk. There would have been too many variables that could not be predicted or even have an answer to. And so start, you know, so I, I'd say it all the time, um, call it luck or judgment, um, but Epiphany was started because a bunch of people came behind me to make it possible. Uh, so yeah, I don't know if that answers that question or not. Yeah, no, I mean, that answers the question. Like, I think the biggest things when starting a coffee business are like how to start it. Am I buying a roaster in a space? Yeah. Am I renting time? You know, contract roasting is an option for some people, but like finding a space to be able to roast is key. And obviously that's how we started is you go that keeping overhead low in the beginning of a business. Obviously there's a ton of advantages to having your own space and having your own roaster. But when you're first starting, it's like, it's nearly impossible to predict where you'll be a year or two years from there. And so buying a roaster is you hear a lot of people that start on like three kilo roasters and then six yeah. months in they're like, this is already a, a limitation, but we're still, you know, we spent the money for that. So we don't have the money for another one. And so that, that's a really smart way, but it does require a little bit of uh, luck and circumstance to be able to find a space that really works for you. And so when you end up finding the space, you meet him, you're roasting on the Loring, what were the first steps to launch? How did you decide to launch? What strategy did you take? How, where are you finding your customers? Because that can, that's always like, the most daunting step in my mind is yeah. like the, the logistics of it in my mind are kind of like those can be sorted out. If someone else is doing this, we can find a way to do it too. But yeah. the finding of the customers and marketing and launching and continuing to roast on a weekly basis, how yeah. did you approach that as you launched the business? Yeah, uh, I know that as we started up, you know, one of the biggest almost that wasn't a tripping point, but even establishing like the logo and creating the website and all these, you know, big supportive foundational uh, steps that kind of go into starting a business. You know, we, we took our time with because we knew that if we established it well today or in that, you know, early stage of the business that we could hopefully be able to rely on that for years and years. And so, yeah, when it came to establishing the brand, um, yeah, my wife and one of our other close friends who's really, really good at like, you know, marketing and stuff like that really helped us establish, you know, just that light bulb uh, and the EC inside of it. That was 
almost like a, that, that logo needed to be there first for me um, and establish that brand, the identity. Um, and what we chose to go with is kind of more of like an electric feel to the entire brand. That's why, you know, one of our, you know, blends name is, is Electrify and stuff like that. And, you know, especially here in Boise, we really had to market slash create our blends and single origin names in a very approachable way um, because there's so much new kind of, the coffee industry is growing in Boise like mad, but there's still a lot of generally basic uh, outlooks on coffee. So for example, uh, I, had, I, I chose to create our single origin series is called the Vibrant Series um, and then have our single origin you know, information on the label as well instead of leading with as much as I want to, and I must feel like I'm cheating coffee farmers in a way, I didn't want to create the main name of our single origins to be, you know, Colombia, Monte Blanco, um, you know, Rodrigo Sanchez, Valencia, because I had the general feeling that the coffee buyers here um, would be intimidated by that long name or, or something like that. And for the most part, people typically lean towards something that's more familiar than something that is obviously less familiar. And so it was a big goal of ours to just create every type of coffee that we sell to be really, uh, you know, at, at face level, basic and easy to understand. They see the coffee uh, with the color and the name and they see that the flavor notes are so and so, and that could be something that they can rely on. Um, and so, that was just kind of something we had to really figure out early on is, is do we really want to be technical or do we want to be basic and making sure that we would fit to the, the clientele that we're, we have here in Boise. And a lot of folks have a, have, uh, a lot to learn in a way. Um, but anyways, so the next steps for us in terms of finding clients, you know, customers and stuff like that, I'll be really honest. When I started Epiphany, I thought I was going to nail a few big accounts right out the gun because I was a wholesale educator. Um, I had trained in multiple barista staffs with some shops here in downtown Boise. And I was like, okay, cool. Once I start this up, folks are gonna be excited. They're gonna be like, okay, yeah, Austin, we've worked with him before. It'd be really easy to transition to working with him with Epiphany. I got zero out of like the seven accounts I thought I was gonna get starting out. And maybe that has a lot more to do with timing with uh, COVID and people seeing a lot more risk than benefit with switching the, from their current vendors or providers in any way, shape and form. And so I, I'm, I'm starting to recognize that, okay, you know, that's just, that's just starting a business in COVID. I'm gonna have to figure out how to keep the doors open without hitting any big accounts. And so what we decided to focus on once uh, some of these bigger accounts didn't go our way was to focus on our online store in a really serious way. And so uh, it's kind of like some big uh, goals in 2022s to create, um, you know how Hello, uh, sorry, uh, Home Chef or like Blue Apron have box meals and stuff like that. It's our highest goal in 2022 to create a similar uh, subscription that like that for coffee, being able to provide equipment um, and have, you know, curated recipes on set equipment with specific coffees and basically have it as, you know, that, that kind of comforting thing when you get a box meal like that, where it's just steps A through C and you have a meal in 30 minutes. To be able to provide that at a, at a coffee level, uh, you know, to have A through C and you have coffee in four minutes, um, to make that as simple, as easy, um, is easily understood as possible. That's our goal. And hopefully that subscription realm will, will do as well. So uh, honestly, when it comes to Epiphany's, um, you know, track record so far in 2021, 20, uh, I'd say probably at least half of our business has been through our online store. And that's just trends that things are going right now. People have realized that they can have everything they need from home. And uh, so being able to kind of reach that gap and provide that in the most simple, least complicated way is, is our goal. And uh, I really do believe that if, uh, if we nail this subscription and we are able to market it well uh, so that people nationally can hear about it, um, 
that our online store can carry us through. Um, and, you know, thankfully events and stuff like that have been really well here uh, too. And I kind of running into this, uh, this wall where if, uh, if wholesale accounts don't kind of uh, build up yet, then it's going to expedite the, the process in us maybe opening up our own stand or our own shop in some way, shape or form too. So yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it definitely did not start the way that I was hoping it to. Um, but at the end of the day, that's part of being a good business owner is adapting to what the, uh, what environment you have and what's available to you. Um, and, uh, there's definitely a fear of, of switching anything up during COVID for established businesses right now. And, uh, here in Boise, I think there's a lot of, uh, trust for some of the brands that were established back in the nineties and stuff like that. And so, I think naturally people inclined to those coffee businesses that have been here for a while and are a little bit more skeptical with new coffee businesses. And so I, I assume that it's just kind of, okay, that just means we have to survive. We have to get through the first year or two. And, uh, and by, and it's one thing I've learned is, is being in existence is a success in and of itself because then people are able to find you and then people are able to buy coffee from you or whatever it is. And so, um, I wouldn't say I'm a businessman at all. Uh, I, as, as I kind of mentioned before, I went into this for education. Um, and so education is still kind of in the forefront of my mind. And, uh, and when it comes to big business decisions, still kind of intimidates me. I always say uh, I never wanted to become a business owner. Um, it's a conversation I had with Marco from Bootstrap a while back. And he said, I'd much rather drive the race car than own it. Um, and I think that that mentality is kind of stuck with me in a little way. Um, but you know, now that I am the one owning the race car in a way, it's, it's, it's also just kind of fun to be in that business mentality. Um, ever since I started a business, I can't see myself being in any other role, to be honest, because it's something that really clicks well with my personality um, and just how I kind of do my day to day. Um, it works for me for some reason. And I can definitely say it's, it's not the right fit for everybody. Um, but for the types of folks who don't mind having something on their mind constantly and thrive off of that, then I think it could work out. Uh, but anyways, um, but yeah, I think that's roughly how, how the clientele side of things has been going for us. Uh, yeah, yeah. And that, it's interesting on the wholesale side, because this was the biggest thing I noticed going from the beer industry to the coffee industry is the cafe restaurant side was by far the steepest learning curve because it sounds like you and I probably had a very similar situation where in my mind, I think, okay, if I come to the market with great coffee, that's like a level above probably what the average is in the industry, we're locally roasted. Uh, I can go into these places that are serving coffee that's maybe a, a level lower and get them to taste the coffee and be like, do you agree that this coffee tastes better? And they go, yeah. And they go, so are you interested in selling it? And they're like, no, we're happy with our current supplier. It's yeah. it, th that's the one channel within coffee that seems to have the most factors that go into a decision. But, and that used to really frustrate me because I would say like, how could you, this, I, I wouldn't tell this to the person, but I, yeah. I, in my mind, I'm like, how can you agree that this tastes better than what you're serving, but you don't want to make the change? Obviously price is a key component that can, for a lot of businesses be the number one thing where they say, we're not looking to increase cough on, uh, costs on something, even if it does taste better. But the other side is what you mentioned. It's that risk. In the beer world, if I'm going in trying to sell a beer on tap or sell a bottle of beer, if I have 20 taps and 50, beers, uh, 50 bottle selections, it's not a very high risk to change a beer on tap or to add a bottle. Because worst case scenario, customers don't like it on tap. We'll just change it back to something else. If it doesn't work in bottle, okay, I spent $50 on a case of beer and I'm out that. And in most cases, distributors have to take back expired product anyway. But in the coffee world, you're going into a business. And if this business has been around for a while, a successful business that's staying open and saying, hey, do you want to disrupt your core top selling menu item on something that is a new business? And so one thing I've told people in the past is they go, well, how did you get into cafes and restaurants? Part of it is what you said. It's just existing. There's a certain length of time that if I go into someone in January, February, March of 2018, and they say, how long have you been doing this? And I say, we launched one, two, three months ago. 
They might be really interested in your coffee. They might be interested in you and the relationship that you've had in the past or just interested in working with you. But there's this that only time can solve this problem of being around because the less time a business has been around, the more risk it is for somebody to buy their products. Because if I disrupt my entire coffee program for this, and then six months later, you're out of business. Now they're scrambling to go back to their previous supplier, who's probably not pumped that they left them in the first place to find a new supplier, which is a whole deal. And, and so that that's the one thing that unfortunately I've found that it's just like time and being around and being able to get credibility through different ways is probably the biggest thing that lends itself to more success in that world. But your response to it with the online side is a very similar response to what we had to do in 2020. Uh, when things closed down, we were heavily, heavily cafe, restaurant, and retail. When everything closed down, about 80% of our business disappeared and we had to learn the online. And there was, if there's one thing I could go back and do from the start is like, we should have been focusing online because here it's like the opposite of the cafe restaurant world. It's very little risk for a customer to buy a bag of coffee. Obviously it's mostly just like the money that if I spend this money online is something I've never tasted. I'm risking that I just spent a pretty decent amount of money on for what a lot of people would look at, at just coffee and yeah. hoping it tastes as good as these people say. But after mm -hmm. that, You've got a customer that is going direct to you if there's any problems, if they really like it, they've got a direct contact to you. And that business really is much more sustainable over time and lower risk per customer. Because if you have a great cafe or restaurant, if they decide to go with a different supplier, if there's always the potential somebody could go out of business, especially during these times, that all of a sudden that high volume going out that you've adjusted your business to is gone in a moment. So I would say that the online side is a great way to diversify the business, especially early on so that you've got like this nice foundation to build on. Um, but I think that's about as good of a place to end as any. Uh, yeah. I'm really, really excited to be able to see what you'll be able to do out in Boise. Obviously hit us up the next time you're in town. Uh, yeah, would love absolutely. to see and get updates on where you're at. And I will uh, end it like I do every other episode and say, have a nice day.